Good morning. Let me try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis, uh, page one. Genesis chapter one. Amen. Amen. And I'll be reading and concentrating on verses 26 through 30. Can you guys hear me clearly out there? I'm not sure if I hear an echo. Just want to make sure. um, Maybe to turn it down just a tad bit. Amen. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every green or every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw that everything he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day I want to preach on the topic the pinnacle of God's creation the pinnacle of God's creation mankind Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your precious Holy Spirit, and we ask you that he would empower me to speak your word to your people. For your word is living and powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit, joint and marrow, is it the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of one's heart. Would you speak your word through me, Father? I have prepared, but I need your anointing. Speak in such a way that your name will be glorified and your people will be edified. In Jesus' name, and all the people of God say amen. amen. The picture I envision as I read Genesis chapter 1 is that of a, an ingenious artist, the divine architect, who creates this cosmic canvas out of chaos. Day one, he calls light to come out of darkness and then steps back to evaluate and says, that's good. And he named it day and night. 
day two, God spoke again. Borders above and below separate. I'll name the sky above heaven. And it was so. Then came day three, where God commands seas be gathered, dry land appear, earth green up, grow all variety of seed-bearing plants and every fruit-bearing trees of all kinds. And it was so. And God looked at the impeccability of his work and saw that it was good. And for three days, God forms the framework of creation. And for the next three days, he fills it. Day four, God made two big lights, the larger one to take care of the day, the smaller one to be in charge of the night, mark the seasons. And he made the stars. He placed them in the heavenly sky to light up earth and oversee day and night. Day five. God spoke, swarm, ocean, with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the sky over the earth. God created the huge wells and all the swarms of life in the waters. And every kind of species of flying birds, God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill the oceans. Birds reproduce on the earth. Day six. Day six is where God spoke again. The earth generate life, every sort and kind, cattle, reptiles, and wild animals, all kinds. And there it was. And God evaluates his work and exclaims, that's good. Here is where the narration slows down, almost in slow motion. Here is where the author gets very detailed, more elaborate than the other five days. And if God were setting off fireworks in this chapter, this would be the grand finale. We come to the pinnacle of God's creation, the creation of man in God's image. Becomes the focal point of Genesis chapter 1. You see, for five days, God was creating a home for mankind. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So as we take this tour to look at the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind, there are three life-changing truths we see in these verses. Number one, we see God's plan for mankind. Number two, we see God's pattern for mankind. And number three, we see his purpose for mankind. Let me give you the first one. We see God's plan for mankind in verse 26a. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In this verse, we have an announcement of God's intentions. 
Whereas in verse 27, God carries out that intention. This is God's original plan from the very beginning. Notice how the repetition, you see that word and, 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 and. And then when we arrive to verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. But also notice that there's a sudden change from a third person to the first person plural. Then God said, let us make man. See, the author allows us to drop into a divine conversation. So the question is, who is God referring to when he says, let us make man kind in our image? Is he up there speaking to angels, making plans to create man? Certainly, he's not speaking of angels. Humans are not created in the image of angels in God. They are created in the image of God. And although God's name, Elohim, is in the plural, we know by implication that this is a conversation within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep when God was creating. The Spirit was present and active at the beginning of creation. He was the co-agent of creation. Later on, we discover in Colossians chapter 1 that, that Jesus is also the agent of creation when God the Father spoke the world into existence. You see, the plan to make us in his image was a community project. One theologian called it the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revelation. In other words, God deliberately reveals who is involved in making mankind, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This also reminds me that God did not need to create man. He did not need to create us because, because of, of somehow that he was lonely or needed fellowship with other persons. No. There was perfect love and fellowship among the members of the Trinity for all of eternity. One God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, loving and glorifying one another always. So the question is, what was God's intentions for making and creating us? Why did he make people? God created us for his glory. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. I'm teaching my daughter Hannah uh, the catechism so that she can have a paradigm for understanding the existence of God and her need for the gospel through Jesus Christ. So right before dinner, we usually have this practice where I ask her uh, these questions about 10 questions. Um, she's on her fourth question right now. And so I asked her, the first question is, who made you? And the answer is, God made me. And she normally points to herself. So she learned that one. Then day two, I taught her the second question. What, what, who else did God make? And then she says, well, God made Bunny. I said, yes, God did make Bunny. And then she would respond, well, God made Mommy and Daddy. That's great. But then I had to teach her that God made 
everything. So now she's learning. She's picking up on it. And then I asked her the third question. Why did God make you? And the answer is, God made me for his glory. So what my daughter is doing right now, when we about to you know, have dinner, she typically wants to rush through and give all the answers before I ask the question. So as soon as I ask the first question, she said, I said, who made you? She said, God made me, God made everything for his glory. <laughs> Baby, I didn't even ask you the three questions yet. I don't know if she was rushing just to eat. But God made everything for his glory. God made us for his glory. The divine architect made us the pinnacle of creation. Man and woman in the Imago day. You are not an accident, regardless of what your science teacher may have taught you in class some time ago. You're not a big blog of, of chance happening. You did not come from apes or amphibians. You're not a product of natural selection or genetic mutation over millions of years ago. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You are made in the image of God, for God made us, which means that we are creatures wholly dependent upon him, for in him we live, move, and have our being. Have you ever pondered all the complex systems created in the human body? boggling to the mind of scientists for centuries. The skeletal system, the muscular system, the nervous system, the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, the digestive system, the reproductive system. And all these systems interconnected. Fascinating. But even more fascinating is the long sequence of information in the DNA of every living thing. It's a signal from a vast intelligence. That intelligence is the creator of the universe. The biology of the human being is obviously very stunning. There simply is no way for you to look at this magnificence. The incredible complexities of these highly organized systems in man and conclude that it was all an accident. A mere chance happening from a big bang boom. It makes no sense any more than me finding a watch in the wilderness and concluding that it happened by accident. To do so would be to commit intellectual suicide. Intelligent design always has an intelligent designer. Amen? God was intentional in designing in us his image. So now that we know God's plan for mankind, let's look at God's pattern for mankind. So if you have your notes, that, that, pat, that blank spot right there is for the pattern. God's pattern for mankind. God plans to pattern us in his image in verse 26 and then executes that plan in verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Much of what we will see in Genesis chapter 
1 verse 26 is going to be fleshed out in chapter 2 when God makes man from the dust of the ground and breathes in him the breath of life and he becomes a living soul. Unlike the animals, humans can have a very special relationship with God. God not only gives us personality, minds to think with and to reason with, emotions to feel with, wills to make decisions, which reflects what God is like. He also gives us an inner spiritual nature that enables us to know and pray and worship him before the fall. No animal will ever spend an hour in prayer for a relative or a friend. If you find one, come and talk to me. We can give you some counseling for that. Unlike animals, humans represent God on earth. Humans are personal beings who are self-conscious and can be self-reflective. They have a built-in moral compass. They can discern between right and wrong. Human life was similar to God, but the rest of creation was after its own kind. Ultimately, what distinguishes humanity from animals is the Omega Day. We were made to have a relationship with God and to be in deep fellowship with him. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, there's very little nuance between the terms image and likeness in Hebrew. Likeness literally means after the pattern, to resemble. The usage is found in Exodus chapter 25 verses 9 and 40 where Moses is told to actually build the tabernacle after the pattern that God has showed him. It was Von Rand who had made the analogy that just as kings set up statues of themselves throughout the border of their land to show their sovereign domain, so God establishes his royal representatives on earth. And unlike the king's statues, they're merely inanimate objects. These are, but we are living, breathing creatures made in his likeness to represent him. See, the purpose of image or the images is to image. We carve images out of people and build statues out of them in order to portray them, to put them on display. Humans are originally designed to reflect God to others. Therefore, when human beings are made in his image, God is really putting himself on display and he's commanding us to be filled or fill the earth with such images of himself, all for his glory. The Christian understanding of the image of God must be separated from New Age thinking. We're made in God's image. We're only a likeness of him. We're not God. We can clearly make some, draw some inferences from these verses. The pattern God made in us has weight to it. To use Pastor Tim's words, we have to learn how to respect the image. Verse 27 is the first poetry in the Bible, consisting of three lines, each with four stresses and three repetitions of the word bara, to create. Kent Hughes argues that this is the high point of creation. He said, consider this. Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, 
past countless orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery globes located a few hundred miles light years below the Milky Way. Though you can slow to examine the host of the hot stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe or you could observe close up protostars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness the star's birth in all its stellar journeys, you will never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being, a child that is created in the image of God. I like what C.S. Lewis said when he draws our attention to this reality. He said, there, is, there are no ordinary people. You have never met or you have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snob, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Parenthetically, this is one of the reasons why Tim wrote this winsome book, Respect the Image. Tim reminds us that knowing that humans are made in the image of God affects how we think about with whom we talk to, whom we communicate with. Today, there is an assault on the very image of God in man through senseless killings. But Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 reminds us God is very clear that whoever shed man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. Which, by the way, means that our Imago day was not completely lost or destroyed at the fall. But consider this. When humans lack the knowledge of God, they lack the knowledge of self. And unless we know God, we cannot know who we are as humans. Failing to grasp this doctrine of the Mago Day has led to all kinds of gross mistreatment and crimes against humanity. Amen? Everything from chattel slavery to, of indigenous African people to people of color to the systematic extermination of millions of Jews under Hitler's regime to the sophisticated euthanasia and the discrimination of people based on race, ethnicity, gender, to abortion, ending life for millions in the womb, to human trafficking and abuse of all sorts. This is an assault on the Imago Dei, committing cosmic treason against God who made us. You can also infer from this is that we are one race, the human race. That all mankind, without distinction, are the image of God. They're in the image of God. And in the ancient Near East culture, only the kings partake of the divine image in mythology. However, in scripture account, which is counterculture to that day, every human being is made in the image of God and thus takes on royal kingly function within God's creation. In a very real way, we're all related. Amen. Look at your neighbor next to you. Say, I'm related to you. We're related because we're descended from Adam and Eve. Some may, some may call this universal brotherhood. The doctrine that argues that the whole human race tells us that all human beings are our relatives in one sense. Not to stretch it, though. We're not to see them as primarily as our rivals, but as fellow humans. 
being one with them in the most basic sense of our origin. This means that we are sensitive to the needs and concerns and joys of other human beings, even if they're not Christian. Yes, humans still need to know Christ because they have a fallen nature, as we will discover in the coming weeks. They need to trust in Christ alone for their salvation in order to be adopted into God's eternal family. We know that. But what this truth teaches and underscores, if we fully understand it and act upon it, it should produce a concern and empathy in us for other human beings simply because they are made in the Imago Day. Francis Safer, a renowned apologist in his book, Escape from Reason, shared a compelling story that underscores this point. He said, some years ago, I was lecturing in Santa Barbara, and I was introduced to a boy who had been on drugs. He was a good-looking kid with a sensitive face, long curly hair, sandals on his feet, and he was wearing blue jeans. And he came to hear my lectures and said, this is brand new. I never heard anything like this before. So he was brought along the next afternoon, and I greeted him. And he says, sir, why did you greet me like that? That was the most beautiful greeting I ever experienced in my life. Why did, why did you do that? To which Safer looked at him and said to him, when he looked at him in his eyes, he says, I know who you are. You are made in the image of God. They then had a tremendous conversation afterwards. Then he follows up and say, says that we cannot deal with people like human beings. We cannot deal with them on the high level of true humanity unless we really know their origin, who they are. God tells us that we are created in his image. So man is wonderful in a very real way. Then he goes on to say, but God tells us else something about man. He tells us about the fall. Something we're going to learn about in the weeks to come. He introduces the other element to which we need to know to understand man. So why is he so wonderful and yet so flawed? Who is man? Who am I? Why can man do these things to make him so unique and yet why is he so horrible at times? Why is it? Schaefer asked that question. See, another truth we can infer from this God's pattern in us is that it means that we're not autonomous creatures. We belong to God. Verse 27 emphatically conveys to us that we have been created by God three times in this verse. This principle is underscored by Mark in Mark chapter uh, 12. You recall when the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus about whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus said to them, show me a coin, give me a denarius. And he looked at it. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription do you see on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that belong to God. The point is what Jesus was essentially saying was this, Give your money to Caesar. It has his image on it. It belongs to him. 
but you give yourself to God. You bear his image. You belong to him. Being in the image of God means that we share, though imperfectly, in God's nature. And what Bible scholars are calling his communicable attributes, life, personality, truth, wisdom, love, holiness, justice. Mankind still retains the image of God, as we will see in chapter 5 and chapter 9 of this book. What was destroyed was man's original righteousness. There's a vast dignity attached to, to mankind made in God's image, though it was marred by the fall. But the fall did come. And there's no category that can adequately express the tragedy. Mankind remains in the image of God, but as a grisly shadow of himself. We're made by God for God. The image of God in man means that we have a destination. We're going back to him if we trust and believe in him as our Lord and Savior. Now that we know God's plan and pattern for mankind, thirdly, let's look at God's purpose for mankind. Look at verse 27, I mean 28 through 31. The scripture says, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You were made with a purpose. Your life is not an accident. God's overarching purpose for mankind is fleshed out in three distinct ways. We are blessed to reproduce for him, to represent him, and to rely on him. God said to them, it says, it draws the reader's attention to the personal relationship that exists between God and man. This was intentional and significant. For the very first time, we notice God speaking directly to those created in his image. This is a unique and even superior relationship with God versus the rest of creation. We're blessed to reproduce for him. And God said to them, man and woman, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God deliberately created humanity in two sexes, male and female, to be fruitful and increase in number. A major part of this blessing here is that human life, male and female, has great capacity and responsibility by virtue of being in the image of God to actually create life. We're emulating God. We possess the privilege of imitating him by reproducing life through the covenant of marriage. We're going to learn about that in the weeks to come. For believers, childbirth is an act of worship. A sharing in the work of God, the one who creates life. In reality, this directive that God gives mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is not merely uh, commands related to human reproduction. Rather, they apply to all of life, including the socioeconomic and spiritual realms, as well as giving birth. Not only are we blessed to reproduce for him, but we're also blessed to represent him by exercising 
dominion over the works of his hands. Or should I say the works of his mouth? Because he spoke. We have a royal calling. As image bearers, we function as God's vice regents. God has given us a special place in creation to rule as his stewards. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, we represent him by ruling over the animal kingdom. God has given us dominion. The mandate to rule over the animal kingdom was not given to Adam alone. It was given to Adam and Eve. They both equally have dominion. I recently took my family to uh, the zoo in Washington, D.C., and I often ask myself the question, how in the world did these huge wells end up in this tank? How on earth does a human being capture a rhino? Lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, no. I stood there in amazement as I was fascinated by this African elephant weighing over 6,000 pounds, towering over us. I was only 100 feet away from this elephant. The only thing that separated me from that elephant was those steel bars. And in reflection, I asked myself, how in the world did they apprehend that mammoth of a creature? <laughs> you see, there's not a single animal man could not conquer because of the image of God in him, the fact that he is God's vice region. In fact, James chapter 3 reminds us of every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. That's a profound statement. That's why we have zoos all over the place. But, James says, no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. There's that word again. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. From this verse, we understand that we have the authority to capture and harness every kind of animal, bird, and reptile, and sea creature on this planet, but no one can tame my tongue or your tongue. Amen. Don't stick your tongue out. No one can tame it. Parenthetically, there is no zoo for your tongue. It cannot be tamed. Seriously. That's why I'm reminded again how important it is for us to, to learn how we listen and talk to one another as image bearers, respecting the image. Sorry, Tim, I just... That book affected me. You will notice that the land animals here are not given the same blessing of multiplying as the birds in the aquatic. Why is that? Because it becomes extremely important for humans to have dominion over the wildlife so that they can travel, reside, and expand 
and they do so without the threat of animals. Rule over the fish of the sea, the great whales, the sharks, the sunfish, the octopus, the stingrays, the tuna, the salmon. Scientifically, we know that there are over 34,800 species in the oceans. That's amazing. We ought to rule over them. We ought to rule over the creepy things, the mice, the insects, the other little things that keep close to the ground, those little creatures, critters. Before we cast judgment on them and stomp them, because we often do, I've been guilty of that. Verse 25 says that God saw that it was good. I know. Is there really a purpose for a mosquito? I'm sure it is. I just don't know what it is. We have a rural calling. We have, we have a role in subduing and ruling, but it must be seen as a function of stewardship, not ownership. For this world is not ours to dispose of as we will. It has been placed under our charge to manage for its owner, God. This is God's world, and we're under his authority. This domain does not mean that we can exploit, but to mirror God's actions in Genesis chapter 1. The role of caring for creation as we see God commanding man to cultivate the garden in chapter 2 and take care of it. And when God brought the animals to Adam to name them, We have a certain responsibility to be stewards over all that God has entrusted to our care, including keeping a clean environment. I'm not going to get into environmentalism. What God is saying here by implication, have a lot of children, populate the earth, harness its potential, use its resources for your benefit. And as one can see, the verb does not mean ruin or destroy, nor does it suggest anything approaching worship, becoming one with, as polytheism teaches. The earth was created by God and to be used for mankind's disposal as a steward. This is the kind of dominion that God has given It's both biblical and appropriate for him to use to his own benefit, but as a steward. You see, when the psalmist David started to reflect on the sheer magnitude of God's cosmos, it provoked a powerful question. In Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? What a penetrating question, but it was rhetorical in nature. David had already had the answer in the very next verse. He says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and even the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. David was profoundly impacted by meditating on this reality. This was a breathtaking moment for him. Surveying the vastness of God's creation provoked within him a reflex of praise and worship. 
One cannot look at this intergalactic universe with all its beauty and mystery and not worship God. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And although this psalm beautifully depicts man's place in the universe, the focus is not on man but on God. God is supremely majestic, holy, and awesome, and worthy of our worship. Yes, man is the apex of God's creation, but he is not the center. God is. And that's why he made the S-U-N to be the center of the universe with all the planets orbiting around it. He did this not to bring glory to the sun, the S-U-N, but to bring glory to his son, the S-O-N. Paul reminds us of the preeminence of Christ, that Christ is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We are to replicate God's image out in the world so that all will see what God is like. However, as the scripture unfolds, we fell miserably to represent him and replicate his image because of our fallen nature. And as those with fallen natures, the only way for us to be restored into our rightful place is by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation and being conformed to his image, who is in the image of the Father. Not only do we represent him by ruling over his creation, but Finally, we rely on him for everything. The sovereign creator ends his finishing touches with ensuring that we are provided for. God provides fruits and vegetables for human and and land animals to consume and the birds of the air. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, verse 29, and every tree with the seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. We have to understand that what God creates, he preserves. What God brings into being, he provides for. That's why we thank him for his generosity and his faithfulness. Psalm 145, verse 15, David said, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Genesis affirms that man was the goal of God's creation in chapter 1, and that his welfare is God's supreme concern. God graciously engineered the fruits and vegetables for our consumption. Humans are only given meat-eating rights after the fall according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. Initially, humans and animals were designed to survive off of a vegetarian diet. Repeated throughout this chapter and throughout the book, life is in the seed. Reproduction is in the seed. The offspring that will crush Satan's head is in the seed. Parenthetically, this is why I have an issue with uh, seedless fruit. Because if I wanted to bring some fruit home and plant it in my backyard, I couldn't do it. Because there's no seed in it. It cannot reproduce. But what I find amazing is this. 
that God's food for us comes packaged with seed to reproduce in this supply. It's amazing in and of itself when you think about its capacity. For every pair, I'm going to use Tim's analogy, there's a seed in that pear that has the potential of producing 10,000 pear trees with seeds in those 10,000 trees to produce tens of thousands and on and on for every plant and tree with fruit-bearing seeds. That's amazing. God, the divine architect, supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. When man builds, he is limited by his realm of non-living inanimate objects. With just a breath, God can take a lump of clay and transform it into a living human being. When man wants to make a snack, he builds a factory and orders supply to produce a candy bar that's wrapped in plastic. When God makes a snack, he doesn't need a factory or supplies, yet he produces fruits and vegetables and wraps them in edible skin, and both the snack and the packaging are good for you. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Translation, God looked over all that he had made, and it was so, so very good. Everything was exactly how God intended it to be. Man was granted dominion over a perfect world. There was no death, no sickness, no sin, no struggle, just as God intended it to be. It was a perfect beginning of a perfect ending. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible ends by bringing us back full circle, back to God's original plan. God writes a perfect ending for our story. The earth is the Lord's. The earth is but this tiny planet orbiting in the vast galaxy, and yet the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and those in them that dwell therein. He founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. But this one planet that God has chosen to visit and to redeem those who made in his image. I like what the song said earlier. Christ who died, raised a life, made a way for me. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. And we ask that your word would pierce our hearts and bring fruit to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.